And so we'll pick up chapter 2 after the first of the year. Now, let me say this about uh, next week. Next week, we will officially begin experiencing God, the study experiencing God. Now, I know many of you, and I've heard many of you say, I've taken that, I took it 20 years ago, 25 years ago, whatever. I, I did too, but I'm going to be honest with you. I cannot wait to do it again. And the reason for that is because when I look at my life over the years, experiencing God was one of those studies, and many of you know there's studies can do this, that created a spiritual marker in my life. When I came to terms with what's presented in this material, it did change my life. It, it, it allowed me to see God in a whole unique way, and especially his purposes for me in and through the journey of my life. So I want to encourage you to be a part of this study. It will last 12 weeks. And on September 11th, next week, we're asking you to have your book by then and, and attend a small group, a connect group. And, and by the way, the books are $5, very cheap, very reasonable. Uh, so we encourage you to get that. You can pick it up out there at the desk. And so they're $5. You do not need to come next week already doing unit one. Uh, the connect leader is going to teach you how to use the book. Okay, and, and how we'll be going forward in the coming weeks. So go ahead and get your book, have it ready for next week, and we'll go from there. Now, for some of you who may not be in a connect group, maybe you haven't uh, uh, attempted to do that yet, we encourage you also to go to the same desk right outside these doors, and you will see a list of our connect groups uh, here on the yellow cardstock. And then if you prefer to join a new group that's actually beginning next week, there is a card for that. And so there are some times that you can look into. Uh, we have Sunday morning. We have a, a couple of home groups. And then we have Wednesday night studies also. So we invite you to be a part of that. Most all those will be going through uh, this journey together. So we invite you to be a part of that. And I hope you'll get in there and really allow God to work through your life through this series. All right. Well, Colossians chapter 4. Today I want to talk to you about passion. I want to talk to you about your affections as it relates to your life. And so today, as we look into what Paul is writing here, it appears in these last verses that we see this whole idea that Paul is asking for the passion of the church. So look at the introduction on your outline. One's affection for the things of God is determined by their passions, what lights your fire, so to speak, what gets you energized, your perceptions how they view God or how you view God, and priorities, how you prioritize your life. How do you do that? I mean, when you look at who you are, the essence of who you are is found really in the passions, your perceptions, and also your priorities. And that really does determine a lot about you. Well, the same is true for individual local churches. When you begin to look at a local church and you begin to look deep within that local church, hopefully at some point you'll pick up on what that church's passion is, not only its passion, its perceptions, but also its priorities. And we as a church here at, at Pleasant City Church, we are seeking to be a, a church that has a passion for the things of God that has a perception that we view everything through God's word, his truth, but not only that, in our priorities and what we hold to be very important in our church family. And so we're going to be looking at some of that. But Paul's really building a case 
for this whole idea of really where are your affections. So, so if you will, look on your outline. The first thing we see here is a special message. He's closing out his letter. And we begin to, read, to look at this in verse 16. He says, now when this epistle is read among you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And that you likewise read the epistle from the Laodiceans. Now, now when you look at this, this one verse, you're going to see that Paul is challenging the, the readers of this, that would include us at this moment, on three different times to read a letter. Now, these letters, think about it, will eventually become what we know as the Word of God. And so therefore, as followers of Jesus, I believe it's important that we know how to handle the Word of God. And the best way, you say, well, how do you handle the Word of God? How do you look at it in, 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 in the view in which you should look at it? Write this down, Psalms 119. That will show you how you are to view the Word of God. Now, you say, well, I, I can't wait to read that, that chapter. Uh, I, I should have that done in, in just a matter of minute, minutes. It's the longest chapter in the Bible, by the way. Okay? So have fun with that. But anyway, it tells you how you are to view and, and operate within the realm of God's truth, His Word. Now, it's also important to this. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul is telling Timothy, basically, give attention to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. And all that is found in the term and under the whole idea of the Word of God. Now, what these words reveal to us is this, that the Word of God is powerful. It's powerful. And the thing that we need to realize is not just words that are put together, written by Paul or written by John or whomever. They are literally, and when we look at it, it is the Word of God. It is God revealing himself about himself to us. And there's power in knowing about who God is and how he sees us. And we'll look at more of that in just a moment. Now, so basically Paul is saying, read this letter and also let the church of the Laodiceans read this letter also. Now, the church at Laodicea, that letter, we believe, was actually the book of Ephesians, the, the book of Ephesians. And so you've got these two letters that are sitting here. Now, when Paul wrote this letter, the church at Laodicea appeared to have a passion for the things of God. It appears that everything was in motion. If you had looked at this church closely, you probably would have found that they were handling God's word carefully. Uh, they were basically doing, they had the heart of God in mind. But yet 35 years later, 35 years later, John is writing or putting together the revelation of God, the book of Revelations. In chapters 2 and 3, there are seven letters written to seven different churches. One of those churches is the church at Laodicea. Okay? Now that's very interesting. Because early on when Paul's addressing these churches, he's basically talking about they seem to have the right priorities. They seem to have the right perceptions. Their passion was intact. Everything was there. But 35 years later, listen to what Jesus says about uh, the church there at Laodicea. Look here on the screen. He says this. And to the angel of the church at, the Laodice at Laodiceans write, These things says the amen, the faithful, and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I, here's what he says. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm, 
lukewarm, neither cold or hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Now, that's pretty graphic when you're sitting there thinking about that, right? Okay? He's basically saying your situation is sickening. That's tough. How would you like God to size up your church, look deep within your church, and by the way, does he know churches? Oh, yeah, he knows churches. We're not going to fool him on anything. And he looks there, and he literally says, what your passions are, what your priorities are, whatever it may be, is sickening to me. Boy, what an incrimination. Man, look, I want you to think about that. That's what he's saying. And here's why. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. You're not relying on the power of God, the presence of God. You're doing your own thing. You're doing out of your own heart. And you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. You think you're good. You think you're accomplishing all these things, and you seem to be accomplishing something, but it's without the power and the presence of God acting in that church. And so, therefore, you're sickening to me. Now, he's describing a church that seems, from the world's point of view, to have it all together. But yet what? God says it's sickening. It's sickening. Now, that's, a, that's tough. So this is a picture, I believe, of a church that's lost its passion for the presence and the power of God upon that church. I'm convinced that's what we're reading. So how did this church get into this situation? What were the circumstances that caused the fires to burn out? The key may be found actually in the book of Colossians. He, he literally said this, let the Laodicean church read this letter. Paul may have known a little bit about their condition. Maybe there were some things that were already starting to turn towards that. Maybe God is impressing upon Paul to write these words down because he knows. Now, did God know what was going to happen 35 years later? Of course he did, his sovereignty. And so he's basically saying, let them read this. Therefore, it tells me that the letter to the Colossians church contains information that will keep a church from becoming sickening to God. I really believe that. You look at how it's laid out. You look at the structure of this letter. It's beautifully written, the way Paul wrote it, and the way the Holy Spirit inspired him. So, what is this letter that will help keep the passion burning for Christ? And first of all, by recognizing the total supremacy of Jesus. The total supremacy of Jesus. Number one, he's Lord of creation. He's Lord of the creation. How many of you know that? Obviously, we know that, right? He's Lord of creation. All right, now, so that means this. If Jesus is your Savior... Think about this. He's the one who redeemed you. That means the creator of the universe is your savior. Now, again, I've said this many times from this platform. I was saved when I was eight years old. I don't remember a conscious moment of my life where I was not aware that God existed and that Jesus was his son. I can't remember a time before any of that. I was raised in a Christian home. But the thing that, that, I, that so many times that we, we, we who have grown up understanding and seeing that is that we take it so for granted. But the one who provided your salvation, the one who cared enough to seek you out, to bring you to the point of repentance, to invite you into a loving relationship with him, is the one who put all creation together and he oversees creation. 
Now that blows my mind. I don't know about you, but how can you not be passionate this? So I want you to look at how Paul describes this. Look at Colossians chapter 1, look at verse 15. We saw this some weeks ago. It says that Jesus, this is all language, it's speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus was necessarily born. I mean, he was born in Bethlehem. We know that. But this is really talking about his preeminence. Of all those who have been born, he is preeminent over all. Okay? Over all creation. For by him, all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, both visible and visible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. This is saying everything that we can see, everything that we can experience, all those things were created by him, but it didn't end there. Even the things we can't see, he is Lord over creation. Now, again, this is what Paul, I really believe what Paul's trying to do is get us excited about who Jesus is. And I don't know about you, but every time we meet, we need to try, attempt to get everybody excited about who Jesus is. I think it's important. I think that's part of our worship. I think it's part of presenting God's word. We need to make sure Jesus, as we say around here, is our lead story. And then he goes on and says this, all things were created through him. And this is important. This is the part sometimes we miss. And what? For him. For him. Okay. And then it doesn't end there. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. He's not just the one who put it out there. He's also the one who's holding it together. Think about that. Someone said this. When they read these verses or when they see this, they said, can you imagine God? Now think about this. All God has to do, okay, or Jesus, whatever, everything consists in him, for him, through him, however you want to say it, he's holding it all together, that literally all you have to do to think about this being gone, everything that we see, is to remove gravity, and everything just lies apart. Just that simple task of just removing that very thing. I mean, it's just it's, it's amazing when you think about just how fragile things really are. But in him, all things are held together. All things consist. So how can we grow indifferent to this message if we recognize the truth that is in him? Secondly, he's not only Lord of the creation, he's Lord of the church. And by the way, if we ever lose sight of that, we need to just shut the doors and get out of the way. We literally do. Because when, then we become a detriment. To, to God and his body. So what does he say in Colossians chapter 1? Look at verse 18. And he, this is Jesus, is head of the body, which is what? The church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. Now again, in the context here, we've just gone from the fact he's Lord of creation. And in Paul's making the whole distinction here, he's also Lord of the church. Now, what does that mean? The Lord of the church at Laodicea, the Lord of the church in Ephesus, the Lord of the church in Colossians, or Colossae, and also the Lord of the church that is known as Pleasant City Church. Okay? He is Lord of all. Now, we, we, we can look at what God has done here in this place. And he's doing some pretty amazing things. And to be honest, in spite of us, right? <laughs> 
I mean, we've got some pretty good things going on right here. But it means nothing if we don't have the power and presence of God upon this place. And it begins with God, listen, changing lives. God doing miraculous things among us. Us understanding a little more fully the times we come together who Jesus is, who he says we are. And as a result, God moves in our lives. So, so what are we seeing here? Here's what we need to realize. We need to realize that the Lord, the living Lord Jesus, and here's what blows my mind, is here with us right now. And it's not just that his presence is here. You know what he's doing in and through all this? He's offering his peace, his grace, his mercy, his wisdom to us all. That's what he's doing. It's an offer. Basically, you came in here this morning to worship the true and living God, and he is making you an offer with his word being taught and preached. An offer that you enter into more an intimate relationship with him. How can we grow indifferent to that? Thirdly, he's not only Lord of creation, Lord of the church, he's also Lord of the Christian. Now, let me just say this. I needed a C word, so I put Christian there. <laughs> but I want you to put beside that, follower of Jesus. Uh, let me tell you, we've used, we've used the word Christian to mean a lot of things in this day and age. Okay? Really, when you think about it, those of us who are truly followers of Jesus, not just a Christian label, we're followers of Jesus. We're seeking his intentions. We're seeking his affections. We're trying to take on the mind of Christ like we're going to see here in just a minute. We're followers of Jesus. So what does he say? Look at Colossians chapter 1. Look at verse 27. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. He's basically talking about, yeah, the Jews. The Jews, they, they, they entered into a relationship with God through the covenant of Abraham. There was obviously the movement of God among God's people there, the Jews but also is expanded into the Gentile world. And how many of you are thankful for that? It includes us now. And, and, but you know something? It, really, when you think about it, and you read the Old Testament carefully, it was God's intention for that in the first place. God gave everything the Jews had to make him known to the world. That others would come to know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All that was put in place. And so th there's where you have it. But listen to what he's saying here. He's saying, here's part of, this is where the riches begin. Look at the last part of verse 27. Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The hope of glory is Jesus. And he, if you know him as, his Lord, as your Lord and Savior, resides in you in way of the Holy Spirit. Now think of that. How can we grow cold and indifferent or lukewarm with that being in place? That's who we are. That's what he says we are. And, and so basically, the Holy Spirit indwells us. When you realize that Jesus' desire is to consume your life and you surrender your life to him, it will be impossible for you to grow cold and indifferent. It will be impossible. You won't be a half-hearted Christian. You will be excited about the things of God. I remember when I was a young pastor, and, and I once thought, I really did, I once thought that I was responsible for your commitment. 
I thought I was responsible for whether you had a passion for God or not. I put all that on me. And, and guess what? God corrected me very quickly, very easily, by realizing that nothing happens apart from the power and presence of God himself working among his people. It's not a pastor up here doing what he loves to do, to teach people about the word of God. But let me just tell you, it all rests right there in you. It's what you bring. It's what you bring to the table. It's where your heart, where your mind is focused. And so it's not left up to me. It's all on you. So to keep us from losing our zeal and our passion for the Lord, we must recognize, the t secondly, the total sufficiency of Jesus. And the first thing we see here, all the treasures are in Jesus. So if you were to say, okay, I've accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Holy Spirit comes to reside in you. Okay, what's the Holy Spirit doing? Well, he's convicting me. He's teaching me. He's guiding me. He's leading me. He's doing all these things. That's a beautiful thing to think about. But, but, but it really doesn't end there. The fact that all that's present in your life means there are treasures that are available to you. Now, when we think of treasures, here's what we think of. Getting more stuff, don't we? Don't we? I mean, that's the American way. That's the Western society. That's capitalism. It's about getting more stuff. But here's what I found through reading God's Word. There's no guarantees of getting more stuff on this side of heaven. That's not what the riches of God is all about. It's not getting more stuff. Now, have we been told that there will be stuff we get in eternity? Yeah, the Bible talks about that. You can't deny that. But it doesn't guarantee we get stuff here. The stuff he's talking about here is a knowledge of who he is. It's also the intimacy in which we can experience him. That is the riches that reside here in this world. And by the way, how many of you agree we live in a desperate world? How many of you agree we live in a world that, that is crying out for something that has no clue what it's crying out for? Yeah, I mean, the deception is rampant. And yet what we find here is the riches of God. Look at verse 2 of chapter 2. Look what it says. That their hearts may be encouraged and be knit together in love. That, that's the purposes of God's word. And standing and attain, excuse me, and attaining to all riches. And what is that? Well, it's the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, or of Jesus, in whom are hidden all the treasures of what? Wisdom and knowledge. Now, what are the treasures that we get when we have the Holy Spirit? We have the capability of understanding the heart of God, the mind of God, what, 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 what God's affections are what he desires for us, all the beauty of what he desires to do in and through us, all that is available to us. But what is our pursuit many times? It's the things. It's the riches. And y'all, there's a gospel that's being preached out there all over the world. It's the prosperity doctrine, gospel basically. And it's basically here, God wants to give you stuff, and he will give you stuff. And how you know you'll be blessed is because you'll have stuff. That is so far away from God's word, so far away. 
we were in Africa many years ago, and we were sitting there having breakfast, and, and all of a sudden there was a TV on, and, and I basically asked the, the person if, we, if I could hold the channel flicker or the remote anyway. And so I'm flipping through, and there's about six to eight channels that had preachers on it. And I'll be honest with you, I was impressed. I was impressed. I was like, man, look how the gospel is saturating this place. And then I got talking to the missionaries that we were partnered with there, and they said, it ain't the same gospel our church preaches. It's a prosperity doctrine. It's a prosperity gospel. And people who are poor, people who don't have much, they, they claim there, there's this great revival taking place, but let me tell you, a lot of that, and I don't mean to take anything away from the Spirit of God and the way He's moving, but a lot of that is born out of a, a, a Western get-things gospel. And it's so sad. But that's what all that was about. That's not what this is saying. This is saying that we can understand the purposes of God that we can be in such an intimate relationship with God that he literally partners with us to make him known. But not just to make him known. He partners with us, listen, that he may provide us the best life possible in this desperate, fallen world. I hear so many people say, you know, this Jesus thing, you know, I'm, I, I hear Jesus loves me, I hear this, and, but I'm, I'm afraid he's asking much more of me than I want to give. And I'm sitting there thinking, you, don't, you really don't understand the whole idea of who Jesus is. Jesus wants the very best for you. And everything, everything that centers around the law of God and what he desires, I tell you this a million times, but it's so true. I want us to get our minds around it. It's for two reasons. God's law, his, his best for you. Listen, what he says, stay away from, do, do this, stay away from that, is all in place to provide for you, and to protect you. And there's where the riches reside. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to people, and they basically are saying, you know, I think I've totally destroyed my life. I made this decision, this decision, this decision. It's led to one thing after another. I'm about to lose my family. I'm about to lose everything that matters to me because I was pursuing the things of this world and not the riches of the understanding of the mystery of God. That he has wisdom that he wants to impart to me. He, 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 he has uh, discernment he wants to impart to me. That is his riches for us. That we can navigate and understand and live in a world that's fallen, but also be aware of the presence and the power of God in our lives in such a way that we can have victory. And where does that victory come from? It comes from the revelation and knowledge of God through wisdom and discernment. That's where the greatest blessings come from. That's the reason it's important that we hear the teaching of his word. That's the reason we're offering 12 weeks of experience in God. Because that happens to be something in my own personal life that was a spiritual marker for me 20-some years ago that allowed me to see God in a light that I wasn't aware of at the time. It's just continuing to unfold the heart and mind of God. Of God. Next, the total sufficiency of Jesus. We see all the victory is in Jesus. I want you to think about that. All the victories in Jesus. Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. Now, this is some of my favorite verses in the Bible. 
This is where Jesus is just kind of showing off a little bit, okay? In a great way. Look at verse 14. It says, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. Jesus, the context of this is when Jesus is on the cross and he's taking care of our sin. But I want you to look at how it's describing it. It's describing it as a handwriting of requirements. It's basically saying we have broken the law. Now there's something that works against us. Not only does it work against us, it's contrary to us. It's really working against us. So much so that apart from what Jesus did, we are eternally condemned. So much so that when we're separated from it, we are, etern- we are living in this world without the wisdom and the knowledge of what God wants to bring and the victory that he's already got and has. And it says this, those things which are contrary to us, what did he do with it? Well, he has taken it out of the way. He took care of it. How did he do that? By nailing it to the cross. That is all about, what he did is all about you who know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That's where your victory rests. Before this moment came to your life, before this victory was won on your behalf, You were left undone, but not just left undone. You were eternally condemned. Hell awaited you until this took place. And then what did he do? He didn't just end it there. Verse 15, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. The cross defeated all enemies of Jesus. All enemies of God. And, and this triumphant humiliation that was, that's going to take place with the enemy, why the, the, the awareness and the agreement that it's going to happen happened 2,000 years ago, it's, re- it's coming one day. But he's already been defeated. He, he, he's just mad because he has been. He's wreaking all the havoc he can in our world as a result. And, and so basically, what are we looking here? We're looking at the, the, the fact, and this should blow your mind, that we're in our lives, we're not working for victory. We're working from victory. Our, our, everything we needed to have victory in this world came by way of Jesus. <clears throat> and as a result of what he did, we're not fighting for it. Some of you are living that way, aren't you? I used to live that way, fighting for it, trying to be a better me, trying to do this. We're fighting from it. It's already been done, sealed, guaranteed that the victory is mine. But how is it mine? Through Jesus Christ. That's part of those riches, by the way. We see this. So we're not fighting for victory. We're fighting from victory. Next, we see the the total uh, supervision of Jesus. I want you to look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Now, again, Paul, look at what he's done here. He's gone in chapter 1. He's introduced some things that we might want to be aware of, you know, that the true riches of this world rest in wisdom and knowledge and the mystery of God. And, and then he talks about how victory's been won on our behalf by way of Jesus. And now he's basically telling us we can have the mind of Christ. And, boy, will that go a long ways. Look at what he says in three, verse, chapter 3, verse 1. If then you were raised with Christ, okay, if you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, okay, if you have, he's raised you up, okay? 
He's raised you up. Seek those things which are above, okay, where Christ is. Where's he at? He's at the right hand of God. He's sitting in a position of power and authority. He earned that right, didn't he? He defeated death. He defeated the cross. He defeated sin. And now he's sitting there. Who's he sitting there for? He's sitting there for us because he represents the new authority. He represents the new power that can be activated in our lives. And so, therefore, as a result of all that, all that being truth, how should it play out in our lives? Verse 2, set your mind on things above, not on the things of this earth. Now, let me ask you a question. How many of you spend a majority of your time thinking on the things of this earth? The worries, the disappointment, the discouragement, all those things. Isn't it amazing how we get so wrapped up in that? But again, think about it. God, through Jesus Christ, has provided a victory for our lives. There literally, when you think about it, there's a victory chant that goes on over us. Victory, victory, victory. But how do we live? Sometimes discouraged, worried, fearful, doubting. And so how do we overcome that? First of all, we realize what Christ has really done. What Jesus has really done. And second of all, we align ourselves with our mind to the things of God. To the things of God. So how do you keep your, the passion for Jesus from burning out? How do you keep it from happening? By keeping your mind on the things Jesus keeps his mind on. Think about it. Get your heart around the things Jesus has his heart around. Have you ever wondered what Jesus' heart, what his heart is centered around? What his affections are? All you got to do is read the Gospels. And it tells you. The main thing he said he did. He said the son of man. His favorite title for himself. Literally means servant of man. Does that not blow your mind? That, that, we've got all kinds of gods out there in this world. Suppose gods out there in this world. We literally have one who can't think about this. And his favorite title was the fact he came to serve us. How did he serve us? To seek and save those who are lost which every one of us were at that point. Yet, the Bible says his affections are that he pursue you and save you. That's what he was doing all through the Gospels. That's where his heart is. Y'all, that means we're to continue the mystery and the mission of God to make him known, to see others come to know him. So, the question I have for you is this. Do you keep the main thing the main thing? Now, what are we told are the main things? The knowledge of God. The wisdom that comes from Him. The deception that we don't have to have in our lives. That He can bring discernment to our lives. All these things are available to us. But how do those things become a reality in our lives? It goes back to what we said earlier. Here it is. Your fire for the things of God is determined by your passions. Are you passionate for the things of God? And then it goes to your perceptions. How do you view God? Listen, there's many, many, many representations in this world. Many people saying who they think God is or who Jesus is who are wrong in so many ways. You may say, well, who makes you right? Well, I'm just going to be honest with you. 
when I read the Bible, I don't approach it from the standpoint of what can I get for me here in this world because that's the wrong standpoint to go from. He is going to provide things for me to live in this world. But the things I look for is I don't try to look at God's word. And someone told me this this past week, and I thought it was a great saying. I don't try to westernize God's word. I don't try to build a capitalistic mentality around God's word. I don't try to put the American way around God's word. I don't take a political party and try to wrap it around God's word. I see God's word. I read God's word. I understand what is he really after. I'm not looking to get greater gains in this world. I'm looking to say, what do you have of me? And what do you desire of me? That's the perspective that I look at this word with. And, and that's where we go wrong so many times is when we drift away from that. When we make it about ourselves. When we think, oh, it can be this, it can be that. And then thirdly, not only your passions and your perceptions, your priorities. How do you prioritize your life? How, how do you take on the mind of God, the mind of Jesus? How do you take that on? you got to spend time with the mind of God. <laughs> you got to spend time. That's the reason I'm so excited about this experience in God's study. Listen, every bit of that study is going to center around your personal devotion. Really. There's going to be five Five different sections in each week. That means you get two days off. <laughs> but you got five days that you're going to look at the things of God in a close way. And it's going to be filled with the Word of God. It's going to challenge you by the Word of God. And it's going to help you to see. But, but my goal and my prayer is it will help you to develop a devotional habit in your life. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to people and I begin to talk to them and, and we talk about it. And, and, and here's what I hear. And I've told you this before. Sometimes I hear people say, you know, I never dreamed I was capable of doing this to my family, what I just did. I never dreamed I would be the one to fail someone in this way. I never dreamed I could, I could stoop so low to be this. And I'm not trying to rub it in, but here's what I'll ask them. Where do you think, the, when, did, when did it all start? When, when did the breakdown start occurring? And you know what they tell me? When they didn't make God a priority in their life on a daily basis. Not one person, I, I, maybe, I, maybe there were some, there were some people who basically said, when I stopped going to church. And by the way, that, that is important, but there's a lot of people, I mean, the people who say, I never dreamed I could do this, most of them are the ones who said, when I quit meeting with God on a daily basis, when I quit reading his word devotionally for myself, when I quit praying and asking God and pleading with God over matters and asking God over matters and, and understanding and resting in God in matters, that's when it all went south. Next, we see a special ministry. We're going back to chapter 4, but the first thing we see here is to start well. When it comes to our ministry, we've got to start somewhere. We've got to start. It's got to start well. So look at verse 17 of chapter 4. And say to Archippus, take heed to the mystery which you've received in the Lord. Now, some of you could read that and say, Archippus, he must have been a pastor. He must have been this. He must have been that. Now, now when you look at a story, he, he, was, he was just like anybody else. Which tells me this, I'm not the only one who has a ministry that God desires to play out in my life. 
every believer in Jesus Christ, there is a mandate placed upon you. One of the clearest mandates is that we are to have the mind of God when it comes to the lost, to seek and save those who are lost, to go after them. But here's another thing. God may give you an interesting caveat to that, a unique way that he wants to use you in such a way to do something for him. And that's the kind of language I read right here. And he says this, Archippus, here's what you received from the Lord. Now you do it. Do what he's expecting. And so here's the question. Do you realize everyone who is saved has been given a ministry? And then the second thing is this. Christianity, and you've heard this before, is not a spectator sport. Yesterday I was watching some college football. Some very interesting games yesterday. And, uh, and, and I heard someone say this. As I, was, as I was actually looking at it, this quote came to me, or someone saying this. Someone said that football is a spectator sport where you see 22 guys in need of rest being watched by 60,000 in need of exercise. <laughs> Pretty much nails it, doesn't it? And so many people, they look on the work of the ministry and they're spectators. And for some people, they show up here Sunday after Sunday. Let's go see what I got planned this week. Let's go see how well they do. That's good. And that, those are terms not even seen. They're foreign to what God desires. God wants to do something in and through you. You're going out into next week, and there's going to be people around you. And I can tell you this. If there's people around you, and you have, especially if you have influence over people, let me just tell you this. If you're not prepared for it, you need to hear it anyway. God has an agenda for you. But again, how would we know that? By setting our minds on things above. By having a passion for the things of God. By having a perception to know who God really is. And to prioritize the fact that we need to set our affections on those things which are above. We're all there. So, so really, the, next we have, you got to finish well. Look at what he says in verse 17 again. And say to Archippus, Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord and that you may fulfill it. You may fulfill it. Is it important that we fulfill our ministry? Yeah. We're going to stand before the, the one who gave us the ministry one day. And how well will we do? How well will we have done standing there in front of him? In Acts chapter 20, Paul said this, that I may finish my course with joy. Finish his course. He knew there was a mandate placed on his life. He knew God had an agenda on his life. He says, I want to finish the course with joy. Joy serving the Lord. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, we believe these are some of the last words that Paul wrote. He said, I have finished my course. I'm done. I did what he told me to do. Can you think of anything more fulfilling and more gratifying than that? Days later, he'll be executed. Finished his course. Finished his course. Next, a special mark. A life marked by chains. In, in verse 18, he says, This salutation is by my own hand, Paul. Uh, Paul. Basically, he's basically saying, Someone else wrote the letter. I gave him the words to write to the letter, but I'm signing it here. This is my signature, okay? And then here's what he says after that. Right after he puts his name, he says, remember my chains. He's talking about physical imprisonment. He's talking about the fact I am in prison right now. Pray to God 
There's, and at this point, we believe God still wasn't finished with Paul. He will be released, many people believe. And so he's there. And, and, and so he's basically saying, remember that. And then secondly, a life marked by grace. We're not only to have a, a life marked by change, where we're bound to the mission of God no matter what. We also need to realize that there's a life marked by grace. Look at what he says in, in verse 18 again. This salutation by my hand, Paul, remember my chains. And then he says this, grace be with you. Amen. Now, I don't know about you, but how many of you have these pet things you say to people when you encounter them? Hey, how you doing? Fine, how you doing? That conversation went absolutely nowhere, did it? <laughs> and, and Paul was good at writing grace be unto you peace and joy or peace and whatever you know he had that way of starting his letters and that kind of thing that was a general salutation or general way of acknowledging who you're writing to that's good and everything but I happen to believe a little differently I believe the words that I'm reading are the intentionality of the heart of God being written in God's word and so when he says this when he says this listen to what he says he says be grace be to you Paul began and ended his ministry with grace listen the Christian life, I want you to think about it. your life, if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, begins with grace, doesn't it? The Bible says, for by grace you've been saved. How? Through faith. But it began with grace. It continues in grace. You remember Paul was up there complaining about something. Three times he asked the Lord to take it away. What was the answer? Paul, my grace is sufficient. No matter what you're going through, my grace is sufficient. So we continue in grace, and then it ends with grace. Think about it. It is by the grace of God. It's us giving something we don't deserve, and that would include an entrance to heaven into the kingdom of God. It's all dictated by grace. So here's the application. The message of Colossians is this. Salvation is by grace through faith in the all-sufficient Jesus Christ, not through human works, advocated by false teachers. All of chapter 2 is dedicated to the false teachers out there misrepresenting who Jesus is. And Paul's basically saying, I want to set the record straight. This is what it looks like to know Jesus. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus. And by the way, there's many people out there saying different things that are not true. He was really, put, he put himself out there. But what are we learning from here? Here's what we learn. Look out your outline. What are you trusting in for salvation? What are you trusting in for salvation? I want you to listen to a statistic. I saw it just the other day. Seven, I think it said 78. It was in the 70s. 78% of people who claim to be Christians hold a view that works is in the equation of your salvation. That's not true, y'all. It's by grace through faith. Do works come? Absolutely. When God does something in your life... You can't help but respond a certain way. And that may include works. But it's not the prerequisite for salvation. Or it wouldn't be grace, would it? It all comes that way. And then secondly, do you have a passion for the things of God? I mean, what do you have a passion for? I mean, I hate to say it, but yesterday I was doing some honeydew lists. I happened to find me a honeydew list that I could sit there and do while I'm watching TV. That does not happen a lot. And I was sitting there, and I was so mad. I couldn't get my team, I couldn't get them on the TV. They were on a different channel I didn't have. 
So I had my phone sitting there, and I was reading, seeing these crazy scores going up, and I was sitting there watching this other team, NC State. Oh, Lord bless me. But anyway, I was watching that. <laughs> Still can't figure out how they won that game. But anyway, I'm watching that, and, and I'm sitting there, and I'm, I'm trying, and, and, and the whole time I'm sitting there doing my honeydew list, you know, working it. And, but you know something? If someone had walked in the room, you know what they just said? They could have said, man, he has a passion to please his wife. Look at him do what he's doing. No, you know what was coming out of my mouth? Are you kidding me? You could end up being serious, you know. <laughs> my passion was football yesterday between 1 and 3.30. That was a big honeydew list. But you know something? It's all about what we present ourselves as and how we say it and how we live our lives. So my question to you is, do you have a passion for the things of God? If you don't, let me just say this. You're missing out. You're missing out. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you right now, and we just lift our hearts to you, Father. And I thank you for the study we've been able to be a part of for some weeks now. And Father, I just thank you for the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ. I thank you for his supremacy. I thank you that he is the, 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 the start all, end all, especially as it relates to my life. Father, I thank you for the grace that brought me into relationship with you. The grace that continues in my life as I live each day. And the grace that will meet me there in the end as I go out into your eternal kingdom. But Father, in the meantime, I pray that my life will be a life that is passionate about your things. That my perceptions are correct in how I know who you are. And that my priorities would follow my passions and my perceptions. I pray that for all of us here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Christian.